This week on Kettle of Fish, ventriloquist Jay Johnson stops by to talk about talking to himself. Welcome to our after show. We call Kettle of Fish the No Politics Master Show. It's time for Kettle of Fish. No debate, hate, or argument allowed on Kettle of Fish. It's like a Willy Wonka psychedelic acid trip. So hooray for Kettle of Fish. Alrighty, <laughs> welcome to a special one-hour episode of Kettle of Fish. This is the show that's usually the show after the show, the talk after the talk, the 20-minute comedy money shot after the two hours of political foreplay. However, tonight we are kind of bypassing the whole ignorance equation thing today and doing our special one-hour episode. I am, of course, Nick the Saucy One Catsaurus, broadcasting to you live from Caraville, Tennessee, and we also have here tonight Dee, the producer. Dee, how you doing? Yes, no. Tonight, uh, the weather seems to be clearing up. Thankfully, it's been. It's like every weekend I want to go do something on Saturday mornings, and I can't because I get rained out, including this week. But it seems yeah, to be boo. clearing up. So, so hopefully with time. Yeah. And tonight it's just going to be us. Um, Dwayne didn't feel like he had anything to really contribute on the after show. So he doesn't do kettle of fish anymore. Of course, he, well, he <laughs> likes to argue politics, and I think that's his wheelhouse. And and he wants, he, I think he just wants to go ride his motorcycle. I really yeah, think that's it. There's that, too. <laughs> and then it is football season, which I just realized when I looked at my Facebook feed, everybody putting up football things. So I guess football's going on. And Fern's not in today because we're doing the show at a special time, and she is watching the game. So it's kind of mm-hmm. lonely. It's just me and you. That's all right. I, I well, think we can't we'll be, be lonely because of today's no. guest. Who's today's guest? Yeah. Uh, today we are having the super awesome Chuck part of Chuck and Bob, uh, Mr. Jay Johnson of Soap. And I'm, I'm. You couldn't see me, but when I answered the phone, I did like this little thing where I just kind of shake my hands. It's like the little happy dance. I don't know, just like a little kid getting all excited. Kind of like jazz hands. Uh, yeah, a little bit. I'm like, you know. <laughs> Like I do. Kind of like I did when I was like, hey, we're going to go see Weird Al concert. Yay! It's kind of like that. All right. Well, we're going to jump right in here in just a second. Why don't you tell all of the fishophiles, if that's going to be a phrase now, what's coming up on Ignorance Equation Radio? Oh, my gosh. There's so, so much. Like, I'm running out of room on my scheduling, you know, on my my notebook. Like, really. Um, Of course, this week we've got... Jay, and then on Wednesday, from The Pissed, we've got Al Pissed on Musical Osmosis. Cannot wait for that. He's just an amazing lyricist. And then we'll have off for the weekend, and we'll come back on the 23rd with John Bass, formerly of Big Time Hollywood, Florida, and now with his new movie coming out next month that also stars Eliza Dishku, Jane Wants a Boyfriend. And that should be super funny. And we'll be playing what kind of trivia on that, because that's our Friday night trivia. Uh, oh, of course, because that weekend is our weekend of time travel, because for anybody who's been living under a rock or so how does not know, when Back to the Future came back to the future, it was in October 2015. So that is our weekend of time travel, and we will be playing time travel trivia. Then that Sunday, we are going to learn, oh, so much more about time travel, and I'm sure we'll get into string theory and all the other things that don't fit in my brain. 
and we are going to talk with theoretical physicist Professor Ronald Mallett on our kettle of fish that day. And then the 28th, for a musical osmosis, we are having Larry Damore, sorry, Uh, my spelling is atrocious apparently today. Uh, Larry Damore from Pegboy, which that's going to be really cool because I don't know too many people that are my age that don't know who Pegboy is. I mean, it's Pegboy. And then November 1st, we are going, which is on, uh, of course, a Sunday, we're going to have on Kettle of Fish, America's Got Talent 2015 finalist, Mr. Gary Beter. Cannot wait. He is just so funny. And it was really hard once he got to the finals, like, to try to pick who I wanted to win because they were all really good. I was like, I don't know. Uh, you seem like a pretty big Piss fan. Yeah. Piss the Dragon. I am a Piss fan. I, I'm a very big Piss fan. Um, I don't know what it is. Just put a guy in a dragon costume, give him a cute little dog, and there you go. And then Sunday, or Friday the 6th, we are going to have Graham Elwood, actor and comedian from Comedy Film Nerds and the documentary Earbuds. Um, Graham is going, Graham Elwood, he's going to play Friday Night Drunken Trivia with us that weekend. And then, uh, that Sunday, we are going to have on Kettle Fish, comedian Trent and Willie, and that should be lots of fun. And then the 13th of November, we are going to do um, Drunken Trivia with Brian Marshak. Yeah, I wrote Marshak, it wrong. Yep. yep, from Rooftop Revolutionaries, because... The Sunday following, we are going to have from Act Out and Rooftop Revolutionaries, Miss Eleanor Garfield. And on Kettle Fish that day, we're going to have Alex White of White Mysteries, who is playing next month in Knoxville. And we're going to go see them. It's going to be really cool. And then the 20th, we will end out, sort of end out the year with comedian Cyrus McQueen. And then we will not be back until our year end wrap up show. And next year, be on the lookout. Dirty Mighty Divas. That's all I'm going to release. Oh, yeah, yeah. The big reveal. Okay, so just let me put one shameless plug in there. I actually just did a little video clip for Eleanor's um, new video because she's in a band called Rooftop Revolutionaries, and you filmed that for me. So hopefully, um, if the footage is usable, I'll be in their new music video, and that'll be super awesome. That'll be really cool. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, so today I'm going to be talking, we're going to be talking with Jay Johnson. Has a brilliant Broadway show, and I have to say, like, Fatuilquism was kind of off of my radar. I mean, of course, I would see people here and there on America's Got Talent and different shows like that. But until I sat down and watched the two and only, like, I didn't have the appreciation that I have for Fatuilquism now. I mean, it is really an amazing art form. And, of course, when... I put the um, interview together. I wanted to talk about soap, and of course I still do, but there's so many other facets. I was told Jay, I said, hey, we've got to have an hour with you or 45 minutes mm-hmm. with you for the actual interview. I can't do this. I can't fanboy out on this level in 20 minutes. I'm going to need a whole <laughs> hour. He was gracious enough to move some things around, get in here for an hour. Um Real quick, what soap means to me, I had a very, very dysfunctional family. My uncle Sonny is schizophrenic. He actually, and you've met him, he actually thinks he can turn into the Incredible yeah. Hulk, or he'll talk to his fingers. Yeah. He's got an imaginary friend named Flatbush. My mom has struggled with um, 
mental illness her whole life, deep depression. So there was a lot of chaos in my house, and I was only about eight or nine when I was watching Soap, when Soap was actually broadcasting, you know, on primetime TV before it went into syndication. Mm -hmm. And even at nine years old, that show was kind of a retreat for me. Because I would, I under, I even understood then, among all the other shows, because I'd watch Happy Days and Mork and Mindy and stuff like that. But I even understood at nine, I was like, this is something different. This is a little bit yeah. more adult than I should even be watching. But that's fine. Maybe I was a little bit mature for my age because of my tough upbringing. I'm not sure, but the point is, it was kind of a refuge for me, and I did connect with this family that was so dysfunctional, but there was still love in the family. It wasn't like a hateful dysfunctional. There was a lot of love in the family, Mm -hmm. but it was dysfunctional, and the family always got through as a unit. And that was something that really spoke to me, even at the young age at 8, 9, 10 years old when I was watching it. And, I mean, there was a lot of stuff I could relate to, too, like when Bert got abducted by aliens. I mean, any kid's going to like to watch the alien scenes and stuff like that with the little silver guy. Yeah. But just on a deeper level, it was like the first thing that I could really run away into and be like, hey, this is something that feels like it's for me and something that connects with me as a person. Mm-hmm. I think that was the first form of entertainment that ever did that with me. How about you? Oh, my gosh. I, I didn't start watching it um, as young as you were. I, I probably was a teenager when I first started watching it. Um, but it, it it definitely fits in kind of – what I consider like a genre, like Dark Shadows was like that. The Adams Family was like that. Um, Soap was like that. And they were all just a little bit off. And I love that about it because, you know, usually um, everybody played it so straight. Like that's just, you know, of course, it's perfectly normal that Grandpa is running around in his Civil War uniform and threatening to blow things up. Of course it is. Um but every once in a while, they they break that and just be kind of like, yeah, we're a little crazy, but who's not? You know, so I, that just kind of was a great way for me to really realize that normal's really overrated. Nobody cares. Just be, you know, just be you. It's all good. Right on. All right, well, let's not waste any more time. Let's get Jay Johnson in here because I am talking with a bit to talk to him. Jay Johnson, are you with us? I believe I am. How are you doing, Nick? Hi, D. I am doing great, sir. It is such a pleasure to have you on tonight. Um, as you heard in the intro, usually on Sundays we do a two-hour political show called The Ignorance Equation. Things get quite <laughs> heated. So I want we, we started doing maybe two months ago an after show. It's usually like 20 minutes, as the song suggests. No politics, just straight up. We have comedians on, and we kind of try to decompress from all the political battling but I do have to ask you one kind of politically related question because doing my research, I jumped on your website, monkeyjoke.com. I saw, oh, he's got a blog. This will be interesting. Let me see. It's probably going to be stories from the road and comedy related. And there was a lot of um, political type writings on there. Not totally, but there was certainly at least half and half. I'm reading through them. Our politics are very much alike. Our opinions, political opinions are much alike. But as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, one, wow, this guy's got a lot of guts putting this on his entertainment page because it's divisive of a country we are right now that, you know, there's got to be people who are turned off by that. And I wanted to ask you, have you had a negative pushback, like club owners saying, we can't really book you anymore because you wrote this or because of your politics? Or is is that something that's not even connecting out there? 
I don't think it's connected for me. I'm I'm not uh, as much uh, day-to-day on the road at clubs and have to worry about those guys as I used to and uh, get to pick and choose what I want to do. But uh, I'm just trying to state my opinion, and if people agree with it, that's great. If they don't, eh, they've got their opinion. I'm not going to argue with them. Uh, I did get a pushback one time. I also wrote a, a piece on the separation of church and state and um, my thoughts on that. And I, I think I got more pushback just from uh, readers on that one than most anything, because that's a very divisive thing to talk about. But Definitely. Uh, and I really wasn't was talking about religion. Tim I was just trying David? to talk about the way the Constitution um, outlined, uh, outlined, laid out what we would do as a country. And that was really what I was talking about. So, Was this happening during the Kim Davis um, situation, or was this separate from that? You know, I did write about Kim Davis. I think I, I wrote about it uh, even before that. Um, it, it's it's been one of my uh, uh, one of my thoughts, and I really don't understand why this has not happened with America being so litigious. But uh, th- there's always um, th- th- we know that that the government can't interfere with uh, with the affairs of a, of a church, and that we have the freedom to do that. But the churches now have gotten very involved in politics. Yeah, and that seems to be the other side of this coin that we that, that should be outlawed, and um, so I I just think that there ought to be some civil rights uh, a lawyer someday that's going to take up that case and say uh, you can't not uh, politize from the pulpit or you lose your tax exempt status and you lose a lot of things. So yeah, I couldn't I agree more. And that, you know, I think Nick, I couldn't agree more. And I think it was Ben Franklin that said separation of church and state is as much to protect the church as it is to protect the state. Because once you start politicizing, you know, bringing politics into religion, I have a lot of friends who are more left-leaning and more liberal, and they don't even go to church anymore because they feel a little bit ostracized and looked down on just by who they voted for. Yeah, and, you know, that that should be totally separate. And, um uh, I don't care what uh, I don't care what religion a, a person, a president, a congressman, or what is, as long as they're standing for um, the, the rights of America and what America needs. And sometimes those are not as clearly drawn as they seem to be in a black and white universe of a religion. You know, so uh, I just wish our government would realize it's a it's a state of compromise today. It's not a state of it's my way or your way. Uh, yeah. The reason we have three houses is it's it's got to be, you know, everybody's got to agree, and it's never going to be the way everybody wants it exactly. All right. Well, we'll end with the political stuff there because I yeah, want to move on it. to the you fun stuff. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely have you on the Sunday show to mix it up, to wax political. But let's jump into the fun stuff because full disclosure here, when I asked you to come on the show, I wanted to talk about soap. I had seen you here and there, especially with Darwin the Monkey. I had seen you perform on various clips or TV shows and stuff. Sure. And when I dug in deeper, and I, of course I ordered the um, video I'm No Dummy, I rented the two and only, and I was just blown away by the art of ventriloquism. And as I'm watching the two and only, and there's so much of an educational facet to it, there's so much history, not of just the art form, but personal history. I just wonder what that process was like to bring this together in such a fashion. You're on Broadway. You actually got a Tony for this. Was there a lot of catharsis going on putting this together? Was this really taxing on you to put together such a personal and historically accurate show like this? It seems like a lot. Well, it was. It it definitely is my personal journey. Um, And uh, I have always wanted to take what I do into a theater. It's it's. Ventriloquism is more thought of as as a, a comedy club or a variety show or those kind of venues. But 
um, I wanted to go into a theatrical setting where you could actually use the stage and drama and all the things that a stage has rather than just a club. So that was the thrust. I didn't know what the show was going to be. I, I really had no idea, but my friends um, uh, Paul Kreppel and Murphy Cross came to me and said, you ought to do the, some show, and we, we kind of talked about it, and this one finally showed itself to us. And um, the story about my mentor uh, and man who created my first professional ventriloquist puppet, Squeaky, that was a story I, I knew I had to tell, but I, I, it took me a long time to, to wrap my head around it and be able to tell it on a stage for people. Were you afraid to tell it because it was so personal, or were you afraid to tell it because you thought people wouldn't want to take that ride with you? They just want to hear, you know, base, the basic jokes back and forth between the dummy and the comedian. Yeah, there's probably a little of both. Uh, I didn't want to dishonor him by making it trivial, and, I, you know, you, you don't want to make uh, a piece so dramatic that you lose the comedy, you know. And so we, we tried to walk that line. I think we did a, a pretty good job of doing that, but... Uh, I, you know, like all things that you get involved in, most projects, I look back on it and I go, wow, I don't think I was smart enough to have written that uh, the way it yeah. came out. It just dictated itself, and I was lucky enough to get to be the one to, to tell that story. Well, you've made a fan of me and Dee. In fact, our, t- um, oh, yeah. our daughter will be 10 this month, and she's been running around with her hand and talking to herself with her hand. <laughs> so you've definitely made some fans in this house. Well, I, I yeah. wish I could uh, wish you the best of luck with that, but you should probably talk to my mom and then uh, figure out if that's okay or not. So. <laughs> right on. Well, you know, and that's something else I wanted to ask you, just to kind of get off script here for a second. Your parents, how did they react? Like, how much, how far into this did you have to get before your family totally accepted this is what my son's going to do the rest of his life? This is his calling. Was there any kind of um, pushback from them about you taking this unconventional road, or were they very supportive of this? They were extremely supportive. Um, both my parents were uh, in education. My father was a teacher. Then he became the superintendent of schools, and my mom was uh, a substitute teacher and then took over the library. And um, uh, early on, I, I was identified long before there was such a word called schizophrenic, uh, and not schizophrenic, but uh, dyslexic. Um, and dyslexia really was sort of coined in the mid to late 60s. And so my early um, early days in school, they they didn't know what that was. They called it all kinds of things. But I was identified as having learning problems to that degree, and I think that anything that I would show a deep interest in, like I did uh, ventriloquism and uh, magic and those kind of uh, art forms, um, I think they encouraged me a lot. Then when I got to high school and college, it was not like they just assumed that would be my career. I got a degree from uh, University of North, of North Texas in marketing and uh, I, I think my dad just saw it as a great way to go to college and get your degree, and then whatever happens after that. Um, and that's pretty much what happened. I put myself through school uh, performing and then uh, continued to do that till I made it to Los Angeles. So they were well, really know, supportive. Speaking of dyslexia, you know, there seems to be I, – I don't want to say there's a stigma on it, but I remember when Henry Winkler came out – and talked about his dyslexia, and I believe he's written a couple books about it. Yeah. And it seems like that now that so many entertainers have come forward, that it's more in the public like consciousness, and it doesn't really have that stigma it had even 20 years ago. And I think it's partly because of that, right? Well, I think so, because you know, you you give something a word that that's so complicated that you know, a dyslexic dis- 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 can't even spell the word because it's so weird. Right. But, uh, no one knows what that is, and is it uh, is it a mental illness? Is it uh, is it mental development? And I think the more 
that we understand people who have dyslexia and what they stand for and what they've done, you see that it's just a difference in the way we're seeing things mostly. And, right. and it's not it's not a disadvantage. I think that's the, the greatest thing that's happened to dyslexia. In fact, I, I really have this opinion. I think that if, if we were all monkeys and and we had no reading, we had no writing, we had no mathematics that were, was written down, and all the monkeys end up on an island, the ones that really become the leaders and the ones that really drive the, the tribe would be the dyslexic monkeys. Um, because what happens in dyslexia, you, you don't use your codes very well. It's difficult to read and it's difficult to spell. It's difficult to write because this coding of this alphabet doesn't fit within the structure of our brains. So we tend to think outside the box, and that's what you need with somebody that's going to have to imagine how you how you build a house without, uh, without instructions, you know. Wow, yeah. I could definitely see that. Let me um, kind of drive this back to your Broadway show, The Two and Only. It's Tony Award-winning. I'm watching this, and the wheels are turning in my head. One of the things that struck me when you were talking about meeting Bob for the first time on Soap, and we're definitely going <laughs> to dig into Soap in a little bit, but you sure. said, you know, do I have a – I'm with Squeaky, and you kind of did the whole – um, thing as a metaphor where you're telling Squeaky you're not going to be able to use him on a show. But I was wondering how much of that is just showmanship and metaphor, and how much is it that you really do need to feel a connection with the dummy you're using if you're going to be able to pull off this symbiotic relationship on stage and make it real to the audience? That, that's a that's a real good question, and I think that's that's the line at which people decide whether a ventriloquist is crazy or just uh, an artist, you know, I think that's the line. But um, the, the issue with a, with a ventriloquist puppet and, and using it, the, the only reason it makes it strange is because it's emulating a human being. If you took the human part out of this puppet and you said that's a violin, well, I, I have a great memory one time of doing a talk show with Itzhak Perlman, and we were both sitting in the green room together of this talk show, I had uh, Bob in my protective suitcase. He had his uh, Stradivarius violin that was uh, used in the Beethoven Orchestra in his protective case. Okay. So somebody comes kind of walking in and, and throwing things around and everything. And at, at the same time, we both went down and picked up our suitcases and put them in our laps <laughs> to protect our instrument. And at that moment, yeah. we kind of bonded. I went, yeah, your axe, my axe. And then I realized that the way he feels about his instrument is no different than the way I feel about mine. It's just when he plays music, that doesn't remind you the, the, of, a, of a different consciousness, you know. So the music I play makes it confusing a little bit. But um, you have to like the character. It has to be part of you. You have to like that puppet. It has to be something you can play and use really well. So there is a bonding there. There, there has to be an and again, I go back, I, I know some people that will only play one kind of piano, and, and uh, that's, that's the one they feel best at. So that's, that's the way they look at their instrument. So um, really cool. I, I just think that the personality and, and the illusion that you get hung up in the fact that that appears to be a living, breathing entity is the scary part because you find yourself losing, um, losing the, the separation of disbelief, you know, and then you start buying into it and, then you think you're crazy, not the guy on stage. So. Right, right. You know, um, I started watching some documentaries on ventriloquism. I'm the kind of guy, when I get turned on to something new, I immerse myself in it. I'm like, oh, now i got to read 100 books on this. This is amazing. And just creating that illusion between you and the dummy that you're two separate entities, two separate thinking entities. That's an incredible yeah. art form to me. 
But I'm watching the older stuff, and I'm watching these people, these ventriloquists are known for just having the one doll, the one dummy. And then you're looking for ventriloquists today who break out multiple puppets, whether it be a felt puppet and then a wooden dummy and back and forth. What do you think about that transition? Is it good now that the scope is of such that you're using multiple puppets, or was it better back in the day when you knew them as Lamb Chop and this person? I don't know a lot of their names because I just started watching the older footage. But was it, yeah, Sherry and Lamb Chop, was it better then, or is it better now you have that wider scope? I I don't think it's better or worse, or uh, I think it's just different. Um, the the attention span of uh, the average uh, person watching anything has been altered to the point where uh, you can't you can't do long form things as easily as you used to. So uh, one character to the American watcher today is maybe you know doesn't move as fast as if you have four or five that have different personalities. And you know it'd be like uh, Mickey Mouse was then then Disney created Donald Duck and then he created. Uh, Goofy, and he was always in, in the way of creating something new to bring people back. Um, but I, I don't think that it's um, I don't think it's anything but a change uh, for me. Uh, I like to deal with I, I don't like to create a new character until the character speaks to me and wants to be uh, wants to be visualized. I just uh, I can kind of uh, confide in and uh, advise ventriloquists all the time, and they'll say, you know, I've got this great idea for a rock and and a, and a rock I'm going to put a mouth on it and the rocket's going to talk and so he'll be a rock star and I'll say that's really great and you know what that's the only joke you're going to be able to write with that yeah that's yeah, it I got you because a rock has no internal uh, uh, identity you don't identify with a rock as having a personality you might with a dog puppet you might with a bird puppet but with a rock you, you have to think like a rock and, and rocks don't think so you're already in trouble with the writing so Gotcha. Um, I've had a lot of trouble with falling in love with some puppet that uh, that someone has made, and it's absolutely gorgeous and beautiful and works wonderfully, and, and you pay whatever they want for it, and you get it home, and you look at it, and there is, there's nobody home. There's nobody coming back, because that was just that was something you fell in love with on the outside, and for all my characters, they definitely have to be somebody I know, and then I can tell you what they look like, but um, you can't go mm-hmm. backwards on that. Do those personalities come naturally then, or do you find do you ever get in a situation where you're like, wow, this this personality of this dummy and this part of the act is kind of similar, too similar to Bob or too similar to Darwin? I need to just scrap it, or are they all just coming so naturally you never have that conflict? It's it's tough to know, and and you really have to kind of work it out on its feet. Um, that the truth is that I thought Squeaky, my original character created by Arthur Seving, and Bob, who was created for Soap, were too similar to ever be on the same stage again. So when, when we were, um, and eventually I gave up performing with Squeaky because nobody wanted to see me with this guy they didn't know. They wanted to see Chuck with Bob, and so I realized real quick that that was going to be my new identity. But um, I had told the story about telling Squeaky that he didn't get the part and Bob did, and I knew that yeah. story had to be in the, in the Broadway show. But it was actually Jay Sandrich, that the director of Soap, um, who I look at as a mentor. He came to see an early workshop, and he said, you really have to show that. You really have to show – people have to see you talking to Squeaky, and you, they have to see you telling him that. And I said, well, you know, Jay, the, the characters are so similar. I just I, One's going to follow the other one. I don't see how I can do it back-to-back. And he said, I don't, I don't think they're as similar as you think. And sure enough, 
um, it it became one of the one of the most uh, memorable scenes in the show when I talked to Squeaky and Bob follows him, so no one sees yeah. them as the same character. For me, they were because Squeaky auditioned for Bob, didn't get it. Bob became the the character, and so they were both uh, that similar, but. Um, and then Soap just gives you the right to the character of Bob after you leave the show. I'm surprised they didn't keep it and say it was off limits after that. How did that work? Well, that was very confusing, and it was uh, not very clean. Uh, they had really no clue about uh, what ventriloquism was or what a ventriloquist was, how they were going to use this or anything. Um, they really had us down for a 7 out of 13 show. They, We, we were going to do seven shows and be written out, and... If you followed the plot of Soap really carefully, uh, Who Killed Peter Campbell was the first yes. cliffhanger for the year. Well, in reality, in the Bible of Soap, it was Chuck and Bob who killed Peter Campbell, um, his brother from Hawaii who came in who always hated him. And that, there was a great backstory to that. Um, and Chuck and Bob were to be sent to prison, and, and they escape uh, someday, and you'd never see him again. Um, but they had such good reaction from, from Chuck and Bob on the Campbell side that they decided that they didn't want to write us off, so they, they changed that plot around. Um, mm. So uh, since they didn't know, they didn't really prepare for the character. And I kept saying, you really need to copyright, you really need to protect, because um, I do know something about uh, the physical copyright of puppets. And they kind of said, well, you don't worry about it. You know, don't worry about it. We, we know what we're doing. And um, I got a lawyer their lawyer to actually say because it was a it was a point for me the example would be if they do a lunch box of chuck and bob um well contractually you're you you get a percentage of that because that's your likeness but i said what if they do a lunch box of just bob now that's my character mm-hmm. i'm playing it but it's not my likeness how do you deal with wow that? that is confusing yeah so the lawyers had to say that Chuck and Bob were a single character within the structure of soap. Therefore, anything that impacted Bob impacted Jay Johnson, and they were one and the same. And that was a real milestone. But um, um, after after I was introduced to Bob, they pretty much said, here's your puppet, congratulations. And they never asked me where it was, where Bob was, uh, where he was going to be over the summertime hiatus, um, if I was going to have him repainted. And I just I just took him on as my own and took care of him and, they never had to worry about that, so they never asked again, you know. And and That's we substituted amazing. two Bobs actually for the for the uh, show. We actually had a Bob. The first one was was not mechanically as good as I needed it to to do the work. So we, um, uh, I knew the guys who did it. I mean, eventually knew everybody in town. So I just got them to recreate another one and put my own mechanism in it, and it was it worked a lot better for me. So. Well, you have segued us perfectly into soap right now because there's something I've always wondered when I was watching the show. When the show started, Bob was like a really kind of a lot darker character, especially that scene where um, Bob is sending nasty notes to Jody about being gay and Jody sticks them in the refrigerator. And then you kind of have this breakdown and you're grabbing oranges and little milk (laughs) containers and everything. And that shows like a real. Yeah, it showed like what, what was that? Like, yeah, I didn't hear that. I said it was just kind of like your character just kind of cracked, like yeah. like if an yeah. OCD person walked into a horror's house. It was kind of like so that. Weird. It was like whoa. And you know, I'm I'm most happy about that scene because that really was um, uh, a scene that Billy Crystal and I wrote together and pitched to them, and they liked it and they put it in. And so it was really Billy, Billy that came to me and said, "What what do you suppose would happen if somebody?" 
uh, if somebody took Bob away and what would Chuck do? And I said, well, he would probably do this. And, and that's how the scene started. So we, we're pretty proud of that one. We didn't get writer's credit, but then again, they get, we didn't want that. We just wanted to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's one of my favorite Chuck-Bob scenes. And Chuck and Bob were one of my, I mean, if if not the favorite character, because I really liked Richard Mulligan's character a lot, too. Yeah, it was definitely he was the best. A close second. But, you know, you're watching this, and you're watching this psychotic break, and you're watching, um, you know, it's predicated on this. You're sending hateful stuff to Billy that you can't do yourself. Right. And then you, you watch him develop through all the things that he says, all the quasi-racist stuff he, Bob says, and how offensive he is. And by the end, by the fourth season, he's like playing with Wendy, and he's really yeah. soft. What what happened to the evolution of Bob where that character really softened? Was that you? How much control did you have where Bob's character went? Why did he soften up so much? Because he was really an antagonist in the beginning of that show. Yeah, and I'm not sure I can I can uh, tell you exactly how that happened or why. It's the natural evolution of a show that continues on. If, if you'll remember uh, early on, Billy's character was extremely gay and running around in dresses, and that suddenly became less and less and less important. And um, it, it's just when you get the meat out of one idea for a character, either you have to move on from that character or that character has to morph into something else. And what they found with Bob is that, uh, yeah, he was insulting, everybody was there, and he could still be insulting, but golly, what if he was the one that loved this little uh, girl that Jody had? What, what if he was the one that was done that? So it's more of the evolution of writing a, a weekly show than it is um, – Oh, we need to clean up Chuck and Bob or whatever. I think it's just the evolution. Gotcha, gotcha. And I thought it was There's brilliant a- towards the end where he would talk to Al Quacko and he'd be speaking Spanish and someone would come up yeah, and go, what yeah. are they saying? <laughs> I don't speak Spanish. Or he would have yeah. in-depth medical conversations with a doctor and you would have no idea what's going on, that the schism in your personality was so much that Bob was actually smarter than you come the, that was, last actually. season, it seemed like. That was really like I said, that was really an awesome evolution. I thought. I was just wondering how it came about. It was a it was a good device, and uh, we we played it a lot in the beginning. Um, uh, I mentioned Jay Sandrich, and I I, I can't uh, thank him enough for really uh, uh, what he did for me over the years. And he doesn't even he's not even aware of it. But one of the things I know for sure, he decided that the character of Chuck and Bob, when they finally decided to put it into soap uh, about the seventh episode. They were going to get an actor and loop the voice and do the voice off stage and have a voice actor come in and, and they would sync it up and that's the way it would be. And he said, "You can't do that. You can't do it that way because the actors on stage have to be reacting to what's happening right then, or it's just going to not look right." So he insisted yeah. that Chuck and Bob be a ventriloquist that that could do that live for everyone, so that they didn't have to look at a, you know, the equivalent of looking at a green screen, seeing the monster. They could actually see the monster, you know. Um, right. So that's when they started looking for a ventriloquist, and that's when I happened to be uh, uh, the, as much actor as they needed, and I happened to be the right age and the right look for uh, to be Bert's son. And, you know, a lot of showbiz luckiness after that. But but had they not said, no, it has to be a ventriloquist, I, I would never have gotten in on the call. So it was his his mm. goodness. Well, you know, I found it interesting too, looking at your IMDb and IMBD rather, and looking at all the roles you've had, and you've had quite a few roles where you were a ventriloquist on the shows. 
do you consider yourself a patroquist that just gets acting jobs sometimes, or are you an actor and just that's in your wheelhouse, so those are the kind of acting gigs you get? Well, you know, um, show business, particularly Los Angeles uh, movies and television even more so, is is all about uh, pigeonholing and, and what can you do and what, what is your range. And and I think early on, because of soap, I was, I was pegged as my range as – being the guy that could play that character uh, as well as anybody else, so if we if we got that character with a puppet, let's let's get Jay to do it. Um, I, I always acted and I always did ventriloquism, so for me there were always two separate things. When they started doing it together, it was interesting, but um, I I don't think that I would be considered when they they think of a role that I would be the right look for and maybe have the right voice for and all the things. I'm not sure they would immediately say, well, you know, Jay does a really good thing with those puppets. Let's bring him in. Because, right. you know, your, your your boss would say, but this is not a puppet role, and that would be the end of that. So uh, so I've, I've been really lucky to do a lot of things, and um, I've done a couple of musicals without any ventriloquism at all, which were fun. And uh, So nice. I, I just love being on stage. If it's with Bob and the boys, if it's not, uh, I, you know, I'll I'll talk to them and tell them later, but I always have a good time. Well, I found this clip online on YouTube of this show called... Um broken badges, and I thought soap, some of the stuff on there was outrageous, but there was a scene of you actually getting into a physical fist fight. I don't know if it was Bob that kind of looked like him, and I was just really like, wow, this is even more over the top than soap. Yeah, that that was such a fun uh, fun show to do. I I hope that one would run a long time. I think we did a season, but uh, yeah, it was it was definitely Bob. They called him Officer Danny, and I used a, a little deeper voice, I think, than, than for Bob, but uh, it was um, a Stephen Cannell show uh, who did all the mysteries like uh, uh, Rockford Files and uh, you know, A-Team and all those kind of uh, drama things. Um, and uh, my best friend um, at the time was executive producer, writer, and he just kind of said, I think this would work, and, and brought me in. And, and it was such a wonderful time because I did get to do my ventriloquism, but it was also an action show. So we got to run and jump on bad guys and get in fights and uh, you know do... Uh, minimal stunts and all that stuff. So for me, it was, it was like a uh, an actor in a candy shop. You know, I got to do all these wonderful yeah. things and do my ventriloquism. Um, and like like all shows, you know, it, it didn't have the time to find its audience, and maybe it was too uh, too different for the times. Who knew? But uh, it was a great time and a great cast. Miguel Ferrer and Ernie Hudson and Eileen Davidson and just some wonderful people came through. All right, let me ask you a total fanboy question because i read a little <laughs> synopsis i'm going through and reading a little soap synopsis and it says that when describing your character when describing chuck campbell it's saying that chuck believes that bob is an actual person he believes he's another person i always thought that you knew chuck was a dummy you just thought the dummy was alive how did you see bob from coming from the character of chuck and did you have a backstory in your head about them or did it just come alive when you stepped through that door the first time I, I think it was more just my, you know, my showbiz training and my nightclub training of just making this come alive in terms of the script. But um, I think that Chuck really did believe that Bob was a real person. I think that uh, the part you didn't see upstairs, I, I pretty much think Bob was put into bed and tucked into bed, and uh, Chuck tried to sneak around without him and couldn't do it. I mean, I really do think that he bought what every ventriloquist asks their audience to buy, and that's the fact this is a real person, and he has to be treated so. And, and that's the way I, I saw Chuck anyway. I don't know if Susan would agree, but... 
Gotcha. Well, you know, back when that show was out, there was still kind of that stigma that a ventriloquist is somebody who has like a split personality. You'd see the yeah. old Twilight epi- Twilight Zone episodes or Outer Limits, and the doll was always really sinister. And I was wondering if you had any apprehension, not just being the first ventriloquist in an actual series role, but did you feel like because of that character, was there a fear of perpetuating that stigma that, hey, here's this mentally ill guy talking through his puppets, saying the things that he can't say? Were you worried at all about kind of perpetuating that? Well, maybe maybe later I thought, oh, boy, what have I done? But, you know, at the time, if somebody offers you a series and it's actually going to get in the air and it's doing something that you really do love, your, your principles can be set aside for a moment, you know. But Gotcha. Uh, I thought since it was played completely uh, tongue-in-cheek and complete, since everybody else knew and everybody else just kind of treated Chuck as, a, as an eccentric, I thought it was okay. I didn't think he was completely crazy. I thought he was sitcom crazy, you know. Um, yeah. But it's been that a recurring sense. theme. Ventriloquists are always the, the killer because it's so easy to see that they're a split personality, good and evil. It's just from, from a writer's standpoint, that's golden, you know. Half the job is done, you know, because if he's with a puppet, he must be nuts, you know. Yeah. All right, I don't know if you know the answer to this. I don't know what you were privy to going into Season 5, and I know the rug was kind of pulled out from under you guys because this show was written in the soap Bible. I'm doing air quotes here, as a five-season run. But I had read right. something online that in Season 5, and this was just on one of the various boards. I read this actually quite a while ago, a couple of years ago, because I've always had an interest in soap. But I had read that Chuck was actually going to get his own storyline and fall in love with a woman, and it was going to cause a big conflict with Bob. Is this wishful thinking, or is there some kind of truth to that? Well, you know, it, it, it could have been in the Bible. Uh, I never saw any of those scripts or heard those ideas. Um, and uh, I know that at, at one point I did want a storyline for Chuck and Bob. I thought, now everybody's got a storyline. We're pretty much just filling in everybody else's uh, storyline. Uh, and then I look back on the, the show as it is, and I'm I'm so glad that I never got a storyline, to be honest with you, because... I watched people get a storyline, and then when that storyline had run its course, they were pretty much written off. And I, I can name a lot of actors that, uh, not not the core uh, of the Mandans and the Mulligans and the Catherine Hellmans and Damons. Right, but right. Those of us that were not the, the, the prime actors at that point uh, could be written out and, and taken away pretty quickly. So uh, as much as I would have loved to have done a plot, and I think they would have done a good job, I, I was just as glad to get to be the... Uh, the clown that gets to come into the ring, uh, one whistle and I'm gone. You know, that's great. Do you guys know from season to season kind of what's going to happen? Or are you really kept in the dark episode to episode as these characters develop? We we really didn't know. Um, from script to script is what we knew. And, we, you know, we would say, wow, where's this going? And Susan or Paul or Tony might say, well, we're thinking about taking it this direction. But we didn't know. They they wouldn't necessarily take it that direction, and um, they were changing things all the time as, as things were popular or not. And like I say, Chuck was not supposed to be around after um, after the killing of Peter Campbell, but we stayed. Um, there was, um, I'm probably telling tales out of school, but won't mention any names, but there was a, an actor that came on as, uh, you know, secondary to one of the family members, and um, there was a relationship developing there in the script, and we knew from the Bible that was going to go on, and we kind of knew where that arc was going to take it. And so we figured that actor was going to be around for a while. Um, and one day uh, the actor comes in, and the script is down there, and uh, 
his line is, uh, I'm believing you're going back to my wife. Goodbye. And he was never seen again. Wow. We just kind of found out that later that he had had uh, uh, either a disagreement or some sort of thing with with the writer producers, and they just decided we don't need this and we don't need uh, whatever it was, justified or not. But that's how quickly you could be gone. You you would be gone in one sentence, you know. So uh, yeah, we, I mean, we didn't really want to know that much, I think. <laughs> so let's talk about the controversy and why soap ended, because one side of the argument is ratings. The other side is the ratings were still very respectable, but the um, – Advertisers were getting nervous, which seems odd to me because the show had been on for four years and it wasn't getting any racier. If anything, it was toning down a little bit. Why right. did soap end? And it's kind of, when I read the origin of soap and how much um, bad press—I don't even want to say bad press—but how much controversy you were getting before you even went on the air. It just seems like the whole four-year journey of soap was always marred by controversy, and it was groundbreaking, but I, I certainly don't think that that controversy was justified. It was such a strange place to work. Um, I, uh, at the time, had a personal manager that I really got the part and then told him, listen, I win, and I think I got this. And his exact words to me at the time were, oh, I've heard about that show. It's never going to make it to air. Every church in the world is against it. Um and he was not with me very much longer after that because I didn't think that was good uh, good advice. Wow. Uh, but we couldn't talk to reporters. We couldn't, uh, if there had been a Facebook or a, a social media at the time, we were, wouldn't have been allowed to put anything out there, I'm sure. Um, and I, I, they never told us what really happened. In fact, that we were gearing up for season five, and there was some talk about us going from a half hour to an hour, which really meant that would be the case where everybody would get a storyline because they would just have to fill in much stuff. And then days after that call about, you know, we're, we're going to have to gear up to, to figure out this one-hour format, uh, the call was, uh, we're not picked up, goodbye, and uh, you never hear from those people again. My guess is that it became too expensive. Um, I don't think it was lack of viewers. We had, this is an interesting fact, we had a greater audience share uh, per week than Seinfeld did on an average night. And we were still wow. number three. But that's because there were three channels. There wasn't 150 stations and yeah, uh, social media and everything else that you can, that you can be broadcast on. So we were, the, we were the less of three, but we were still bigger than anything that's on really today that, that they call a hit. We were, we were just so big. And the opening night of Soap, the first pilot, after it had had so much controversy, uh, we had a rating share, and, and you understand share is how many televisions in America are tuned to that show at that particular right. time. Uh, it was a 62%, which is unheard of. That means Jeez. more than half of every television in the United States was turned to that show during those those minutes. Um, we never got that again, but the opening show was, was really big. Because of the controversy, you think? So yeah, many people yeah wanted everybody to wanted in? to see, uh, you know, those, those that uh, it wasn't as bad as they thought tuned out and those that were justified that it was worse than they thought uh, tuned out, and we just kept our viewers after that. But, but at the time, the, the, the sitcom um, kind of uh, uh, paradigm at the time was that, that you had a rehearsal hall and you did your stuff there, and then once a week uh, you would go down and they would have built the set and you would be on the set for that day and you kind of block in the morning, you shoot it that night, and then, then you're done, you go back to the rehearsal hall. Um, Soap had a standing set for 
the Campbell household and the uh, uh, Tate household and three or four swing sets set up all week long. We we rehearsed on the set, uh, and we had a cast, a regular cast of about 12, and we always added about four or five more as secondary characters. So when you're talking about a standing set and a cast of almost 20 people, that's a huge budget. Then I think, because the advertisers were skittish occasionally, uh, although we were fully advertised, I think probably they were discounting some of those advertising spots just to get them to to re-up. So you add not as much revenue as you could make on another show and uh, big expenses that wouldn't occur on another show, and, and that just kind of spells um, uh, cancellation. And that's the biggest – that's the only thing I can think of because – Quality-wise, we were up there, and ratings-wise, we were holding our own. Well, I mean, it is kind of the biggest jip in TV history, how that show ended. And I did read an article saying that Susan Harris really tried to compromise and say, look, at least let us do a two-hour wrap-up so we can wrap these characters up for the fans. And she left ABC for quite a while because they wouldn't even give her that. And it just seems mind-boggling to me, bewildering to me, that they wouldn't mm-hmm. even let her finish that storyline up just for the fans with a two-hour movie to kind of close all those loose ends. I totally agree. And uh, no matter what the ratings were or what it was, I, I'm sure, like every other show that has a, a, a clever uh, last show, this is it, finale, they, they've always scored huge ratings. So I, I was surprised, too, that ABC didn't say, wow, we can, we can you know, do the, the Golden Goose just one more time on this show, but it'll be really big and... Uh, and I'm sure Susan would have had a wonderful uh, wrap-up. Well, you know, I think it would have been better than The Sopranos. I, I doubt we would have just been sitting in a diner, you know, moving on. So, yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, think, but uh, yeah, it, it was just very, very, um, very, very tense on the set. And um, I had relatives who uh, uh, had preachers in their family that uh, weren't allowed to watch it, and kind of ostracized me for even being on the show. And when I would say, when's the last one you saw, they, they had never seen it. and So it just was, um, it was an interesting time in television, yeah. Um, oh, I, 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 I just thought of this, talking about the opening show. Uh, Bob Seeger played Jody's uh, uh, lover, Dennis. Uh, and Bob Seeger was a, um, a decathlon champion in the Olympics, probably 72, 74, somewhere around there. Big jock of a guy. And had this great wonderful house up in Homeby Hills, and um, so he had the opening uh, party for Soap. So we all went up there, and they had televisions everywhere, and uh, the executives from ABC were there, uh, Freddie Silverman was there, everyone was there watching the show. And um, so we watched the show, and, and it ended, and we went, okay, well, that's it. And we all started to head back to the bar when the news comes on, and the local news says, Okay, there you've seen it. What do you think? We have uh, Father uh, uh, Jenkins from the certain certain Catholic Church. We have Rabbi Binkman from the uh, wow. Israel. We have, and they had three or four ministers and a psychologist. And the lead story on the local news was, what do you think about this show that's been so controversial? And so the party kind of went from to you guys. Yeah, the oh. party can't went from wow, aren't we? Boy, we've done one to. Wait, wait a minute. This is this is not that important that we have to be the news. And what are they going to say? And will we even have a job tomorrow? Because, you know, if the father, or the priest says, "Well, this is an abomination. I think no good Catholic should ever watch this," it could have been a problem. But they all said to a point, "We're not sure uh, if we get the controversy. It's 
it's funny. Yeah, it may be a little pushing old theater, but it, it, it's funny or not. That's the ultimate. And that's amazing, too. I know a lot of younger, we have a lot of younger listeners, a lot of millennials and people under 30 who may or may have not even seen soap. And when you think about what TV is today, and oh, somebody yes. say, it's just it's hard to wrap your brain around. There's so much content now, nothing can really be shut down. Nothing can. And I remember quite clearly the day that Susan sneaked the word horny on the air. Because um, you, had, you had a guy from the network that would, that would look at every script, come to every rehearsal, and... Um, even if they okayed the word, if you if you were able to act it with a spin that kind of implied something, they would cut it. And I think at the time we were allowed to say damn twice during a 30-minute period. And this script was full of damn this and damn that and and this and that. And and I said to myself, boy, they, I, they know they're not going to go up with this and wonder why they're putting them in. Well, it was a smoke screen. They, they said, okay, you can't say damn here, 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 and here. Those are all out. And they missed the fact that the girls around the table say the word horny. Wow. They're totally missed Smart. It. Yeah, that very smart. Yeah. And, and when you think about that word, that is such a tame word compared to today that, that somebody had to sneak it in. It's it's almost like kindergarten, you know. They, their heads would explode if they listened to one of our shows. Like, really? <laughs> they would well, I'm sorry, What would you say? I have a hard time hearing you sometimes. I said their, uh, their heads would just explode if they listened to one of our shows. Like, well, yeah. We, I mean, you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, now here's a here's an actual um, an actual conversation with uh, they're called the practices and standards guys, and uh, it involves me and Bob um, on a show that was called Chain Reaction, and that was a Bob Stewart show who did mm-hmm. twenty thousand dollar pyramid, great game show producer, and it was a great game, but they they weren't picked up, and so I was uh, a contestant, celebrity contestant on the last show that was being filmed. So I went to the producer, Sandy Stewart, and I said, Sandy, this might be a, a really fun thing to do. Why don't we, instead of having just a regular civilian contestant come on, why don't we make it look like Bob is the civilian contestant, and he's going to come on, and uh, I'll, I'll not even uh, acknowledge that I know him, and we'll just play the game as if Bob is a real person, and it'll be fun, and we'll, we'll do it forever. And he said, and the, okay, and he said, and then you'll win. The end game was... Um, celebrities sitting either side of a, a of a civilian in the middle, and these two celebrities look at a television screen at a word, and they have to construct a sentence uh, that the person will answer with that word. An example would be um, uh, scapel on the, on the screen, for example. So I would say gotcha. uh, what, and then Betty White, who would be across, would say does, and I would say a, and she would say doctor, and I would say use, and she would say to, and I would say, cut, you open, and if they said scalpel, then, then you move on to the next one. So the, the deal was that we were going to get Bob to be the civilian, and it really was Betty White at the time, and we were going to do this. And Sandy Stewart said, even funnier, uh, we'll use that scalpel thing, and we'll use the stuff, and he will answer from his point of view. So instead of, what does a doctor use to cut you open, Bob would say, a saw, no, 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 no. Uh, and it would be a chair. And it would be, what do you sit on? And Bob would say, a ventriloquist knee. No, no, it should have been chair, which I, was a very funny bit. Yes. Now, the point of the story nice. is they have to go to practices and standards to say that Bob is going to be the contestant, uh, Jay's going to be here, Betty White's going to be on the other side, and, and uh, that's the way it's going to work. And the guy in the suit said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If, if Jay is sitting there with the television screen, then won't Bob know the answers? 
And, of course, yeah. he said, yes, he will know the answers. Absolutely. He'll, he said, well, that's the, you can't do that because that's cheating. Um, and then he suggested uh, that the fix was put Bob so Bob could see the screen and I couldn't, and then it would be, it would be, a, fair, uh, it would be a fair thing. And Sandy Stewart had to, had to remind him that if Bob was looking at the television screen, I really didn't know what the clue was, so there's no way I could participate. Wow. And so, you see that in soap, too, people kind of getting confused between a dummy being real and not being real and kind of getting that was kind of the whole running gag through soap is how absolutely. easy it is to get confused like that. All right, one absolutely. last question because we've sure. only got a couple seconds left. Um, when you're working in such a close-knit cast and such a brilliant cast like this, after you guys last you call last show, is it like a regular job where you just kind of leave and lose touch with your coworkers, or do you guys have a bond for the rest of your life and you're talking to Catherine Hellman until the end of days? Well, you know, it's more it's more like the bond is there, but you never get to see them because they're uh, you know she's going on to another show, they're going to another show, everybody's going on with their lives. When you get back together, it is as if no time has passed. Uh, I still, um, uh, the only one I see on a regular basis is Robert Mandon, who played uh, uh, Chester. Uh, he and I had the same agency management for a while, and um, I see him all the time, and uh, it's, it, he's just been my best friend forever. I, I've maybe seen Billy Crystal twice, um, and um, the, the one I've seen the most is Jay Sandrich, the director. I um, I see him a lot, but you're right, you kind of move on, and there's a show business phrase that says we came, we worked, we loved, we left, and that's really what it is. You, you fall in love, and then, then you never see anybody again because uh, you fall in love with somebody else the next cast. It's a shame. Wow. All righty, um, Jay Johnson, want to thank you so much for coming on, answered so many of my questions I've had as a fan for years. This has been an absolute delight. On your way out the door, please tell everybody what you're working on and where they can find you. Well, uh, right now you can find the two and only on Amazon.com, and I think it might even be on Hulu and streaming live. Uh, uh, all of that can be found on uh, the two and only.com. Um, and I'm working on another play right now and still writing my, my um, uh, blog. And uh, uh, so I'm just uh, I'm, I'm not traveling as much, which I really love. It's hard to travel with Bob in the TSA these days. So it's not oh, yeah, I can imagine. Days. Yeah. But uh, I'm, I'm picking and choosing. I just did a wonderful uh, benefit last night with uh, Paul Schaefer and Fred Willard and a bunch of people that I admire and love. Wow. And, and it was a wonderful show. So um, so mainly it's, it's um, uh, the next show will come around, but for now uh, most of the people can see me uh, in the two and only, and it's a wonderful uh, translation of the stage show I think we got on film. So. All righty. Um, we'll definitely have you on to talk politics sometimes because I could, I could sit here and talk to you about soap petroquism and politics for hours so well, have i'd to love have you to do on that Nick, that'd be great all right jay thank you so much um we have to end here d amazing show right did you get some of your questions answered yes totally and i mean i i think it's cool that ventriloquism has become just so much more a part of mainstream now like i don't know i i would assume nick you've noticed and i'm sure jay's noticed like it used to be where oh yeah there is like lamb chop and you know maybe another guy and whatever and now it's like dude you can go to hot topic and get shirts with peanut on them and just on them and you know it's, yes, like, it's very thing. True. i think that's awesome all righty guys we got to go let me go ahead and get us out of here is al pitt still pitt does professor ronald allen have the secret
us to time travel. Can John Bass beat me in drunken trivia next Friday? These questions and many others will be answered in the next few episodes of Patriots Equation Radio. Thanks, guys. <laughs> See you Wednesday.